0: Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Did you know that every year, at least 11 million tons of plastic are discarded into our seas? That's the equivalent of one garbage truck being dumped in every minute of every day. It's an incredible problem. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Anna Cummins, who's co-founder and executive director of Five Gyres, and Duncan Rogoff, who's the founder of Docs Labs. We'll discuss the issue of plastic pollution, the work of Five Gyres, an organization that's dedicated to researching and addressing this goal of plastic pollution in our ocean. The team explains that plastic pollution is not just limited to our oceans and how land pollution is increasingly affecting climate change and how the collaboration of Five Gyres and other organizations using scientific research to drive policy change and reduce the production of plastic. In order to raise awareness of this huge issue and develop funding necessary to continue their mission, Five Gyres has launched an NFT project called the Gyronauts. We talk all about that project, but we also get into the details of how Web3 can be used by nonprofits to connect with new audiences and support their causes. We also talk about how blockchain technology may eventually be used to help measure and track pollution and conservation activities more accurately. After the episode, you might be interested to read more on the problem of plastic pollution or even want to join the Gyronauts NFT community. The NFT Mint is upcoming, so find all the details in the show notes. Today we're gonna to talk a little bit about crypto, but really about a huge environmental problem that is impacting every listener of this podcast and, and really everyone all around the world. I'm joined by Anna Cummins, who's the co-founder and executive director of Five Gyres, and Duncan Rogoff, who's the founder of Docs Labs. Anna, Duncan, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Thanks, Dan. Anna, let's start with the big picture. I think you've been a social activist your whole life, but talk to us a little bit about what Five Gyres is. I'm going to guess that most people listening to this podcast, this is the first time they've heard of the organization. The mission seems so important. Talk a little bit about your approach to helping solve this problem and and maybe even go into some details on what the challenge is.
1: Sure. Thanks so much. And yes, many listeners here might be new to the organization Five Gyres, but I think today in 2023, most people have a sense that the issue of plastic pollution is a pretty massive issue. Now, when we got started in 2009, there was a little bit of information known about plastic in the North Pacific Gyre, but not very much known about the scope of plastic pollution globally. So that was really our impetus in 2009 to start the Five Gyres Institute To expand the research, literally go to all five of the world's oceanic gyres. And for those unfamiliar with that term, a gyre is just a circulating current system in the ocean. People might've heard about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or the Texas-sized island. Really what we have in the world's oceans, and this is after doing 15 years of research, is a plastic smog. We have studied plastic pollution around the world, not just in the oceans, but in the Arctic, in Antarctica, in consumer products, And scientists are doing a lot of research about plastic in the human body. And what we have found is that plastic is virtually everywhere. It's in the air, it's in our water, it's in our products, and it's in our own bodies. So our goal as an organization really is to do scientific research to better understand the scope of this problem so we can use that data and science to drive policy change.
0: That's amazing and spawns a bunch of questions. And you said, well, no, this is not just contained within the Pacific Ocean. This is actually happening in all the oceans. So that was a new piece of information for me. But dig in a little bit on why we shouldn't just think about it as the garbage patch and need to go a little bit deeper into the context.
1: Well, first of all, this was the ultimate tragedy of the commons. Finding plastic in the oceans, it's not a place that people thought to go look. Until the late 90s, one of our mentors, Captain Charles Moore, was sailing across the Pacific. He was actually doing a race from Hawaii back to LA and took a detour through the middle of the gyre. And in the center of gyres is where the the winds and the waves kind of shut off and you get these glassy expanses of ocean, beautiful. But that is where the plastics concentrate. So people just weren't seeing this issue. When the research first really came to light, people talked about a patch the size of Texas, like an island, which sort of brings to mind a visual that you could walk on it, you could plant a flag on it and you could skim it and scoop it and net it out of the ocean. Well, that isn't the case. It's not really a patch at all. It's really a smog of tiny particles of plastic, too small really to be filtered or skimmed out of the ocean without doing tremendous damage to our ocean's ecosystems. So really, we have to stop this problem further upstream. And what we found in doing this global research, because that big question had not been answered in 2009, how much plastic is out there, where is it, So that was our mission in starting five gyres, to literally go out to all five subtropical gyres, the North and South Atlantic Oceans, the North and South Pacific Oceans, and the Indian Ocean. And to bring folks along with us, to bring other scientists, policymakers, CEOs of companies, journalists. So to bring these folks out to see the problem firsthand, roll up their sleeves, do the science with us, and then go back to their communities to be ambassadors. So that's just a little bit about the origin of that term patch and why we're now calling it a smog
0: and fast forward a little bit from 2009 like what have you learned over the last 14 years as you've been researching the problem can you contextualize it for people that sure maybe haven't been thinking about this closely or only seen the garbage patch headlines and haven't haven't dug a layer deeper
1: yeah a couple of the things that we've learned over the last 14 years is one the problem is increasing and that's not rocket science but we just came out with a paper A few months ago, that was the most comprehensive global estimate um, and looking at trends over time. So looking at all of the data that we have on plastic pollution. And I want to get more into data later because I think that's where Web 3.0 could really drive some impact in this issue. Um, But looking at the data over time, finding that the trend has been increasing, and it really comes down to a simple fact, Ian. The more plastic we produce, the more pollution we will have, the more plastic pollution we will have. So we cannot solve this problem through recycling. We cannot solve this problem through netting and skimming plastics. We have to stop making so much plastic, period. Another interesting thing that we've learned is that as huge as the plastic problem in the ocean is, it is dwarfed by the problem of plastics on land. The biggest problems with plastic is that A, it's made from fossil fuels and directly related to climate change. And that's something that we've really been highlighting more in the past five to 10 years as a movement. Second, community health, um, public health, and environmental justice are one of the biggest problems with this, because as we drill more for petrochemical products, the communities that are most impacted are those that live nearby, and that is always marginalized communities and communities of color. Um, So there's a lot of problems related to plastic. Most of them are upstream in our lands, the connection to climate change, Um, and then the oceans are all the way downstream.
0: I live in a community where they recently rolled out, I guess it was a few years ago now, like a bag tax on plastic bags. So you've seen a fairly significant decrease at retail outlets in in use of those plastic shopping bags. But I, I sense that if... This is a global trend, and it's increasing over time. Like the plastic bags are not what's really driving this. Like it's clothing, where you have synthetic fibers. It's I would imagine a large amount of industrial uses. Probably not, you know, your consumer at home use that's driving the bulk of this. But it, am I guessing wrong here, or am I no you're, directionally correct?
1: You're on the right track here, and that plastics are ubiquitous. Packaging <laughs> is really a big driver. So the bags, the cups, the forks, all the stuff related to our food and beverage industry. But then it's also, look around your room, anyone who's listening, just take a quick scan around and and your eyes will land on something plastic. So it's virtually, our communities are inundated with it. We're trying to, to put across the concept of sectors and you brought up textiles, that is a huge sector contributing to the problem, but it's also agriculture, it's our packaging, it's medical waste, it's fishing gear. So our science team came out with a paper very recently looking at 17 unique sectors. And what we have to do is really use science and data to determine where's the biggest source of the problem and how can we design interventions that fit that. Because the way you solve plastic bags is going to look different from the way you solve microfibers from textiles.
0: And I think that's probably a great point to transition over to Duncan and chat a little bit about, okay, fascinating problem, something we urgently need to address, I think, as a civilization. What in the world does this have to do with Web3 and why are you on public key? So Duncan, maybe introduce yourself a little bit and then talk about how you've gotten involved with the organization and how that's led to this thing called Gyronauts. Absolutely.
2: That's a big question. I will give you a
0: little bit of background for
2: sure about everything, I guess. First off, like I am like a motion graphics guy, 3D artist and designer. Like that's how I got started in Web3 and, and NFTs in the first place was just trying to make and sell some art. But very quickly, I realized that, you know, the reason that anything I was making was selling at all was not because of like, you know, the quality or caliber of it or that I was some sort of like prolific once in a generation artist or anything. It was mostly because of the relationship. Relationships I had made and, and built with people in the space and that they wanted to support me in continuing kind of like these endeavors. And I think that really like sort of exemplifies the way I think that Web3 connects consumers and people with businesses or organizations and why I think Web3 is such a powerful tool for things like fundraising and community building. We, we talk about community all the time. And so many moons ago, last January, I think, <laughs> we launched a project called Ether Brews, and we grinded it out. It took us six months to sell out our project, but we we're able to raise some funds and we wanted to make a donation with those funds. And we decided that we found the website, The Giving Block, for people who don't know it, thegivingblock.org. It's a great website. It showcases a lot of NGO organizations who accept crypto as donations. And we came across Five Gyres um, and we thought their cause was really admirable. We liked that they were crypto forward and crypto savvy. But we didn't want to just find their wallet on a website and like make a donation. Because to me, again, the purpose of Web3 and why we're all on like Twitter and the Club house. And having this podcast is to build these relationships is to meet people. So we decided that, you know, we're not just going to make this donation, we're going to invite them to Twitter spaces. And we're actually going to get to know this organization that we're donating to and getting to learn more about them and introduce them to our community and vice versa. And so we had Anna and Casson in Twitter spaces, and they were like, incredible guests, they were really smart and cool and interesting. And I was just totally blown away by you know, their level of knowledge, not 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 only about plastic pollution, all the work that they're doing, but about everything crypto and Web3 in general and just their general passion and interest for the space like really kind of shone through. We kind of struck up a relationship after that. And a few weeks uh, later, kind of they came back to me and they say, hey, what do you think about us launching our own NFT project to try to raise some funds to continue the incredible work that we're doing? And I said, I think that's a great idea. I think it's a really great use case for NFTs and Web3 and, you know, little PFP collections to try to find that community of people who really resonates with the idea of your company or your organization and try to bring them together to support common goal and, and common interests. And so we've been working ever since. Amazing.
0: Anna, what led you to look to the Web3 and crypto community as a potential supplement to fundraising? I'm sure you were already doing. How did, how did you discover that there was maybe an opportunity here to collaborate with people like Duncan?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Pre-pandemic, crypto was just this sort of dark gray underbelly type of cloud that I never paid any attention to. But then during the pandemic, I reconnected with an amazing woman, Pam Marcus, who is now on our board. She's an amazing entrepreneur. And when we reconnected by phone, she just said crypto. She said that this is something that she recommends to a lot of young people today. And I said to her, well, Pam, I'm not really young anymore. Is it too late for me to pay attention? She's like, (laughs) never too late. And then the next day, a friend from France reached out and was bending my ear about crypto and nonprofits while my development director texted me about the giving block. And it was one of those things where three times in two days, like there's something to pay attention to here. So without knowing anything, we joined the giving block. And what was great about The Giving Blog is you didn't have to know anything. Basically, a a back-end system for being able to receive crypto, which was instantly converted into USD. And we never really had to, to lift a finger to understand the world of Web3. But it was also around that time that I reconnected with Cass and Trenner, who is an amazing activist, entrepreneur, and really brilliant when it comes to the intersection between the nonprofit world and the world of Web3. So after a couple conversations with Cass and I asked, could we bring him on to educate our team, our board, our community about Web3 and start to untangle some of the myths? So we spent a few months with Cass and just diving in, like what is proof of stake versus proof of work? What are the real energy demands of crypto? And it was enlightening for our team. I think we had all heard, like many, that crypto is an energy hog, it's the worst thing for the environment, and we realized that the conversation is much more nuanced. The other great thing we were able to do um, and are still working on was developing educational resources that we provide as an open source service basically to our nonprofit friends because entering into the world of blockchain has been an incredible impact for us. Financially, it was a source of revenue that I never anticipated. And then it's also allowed us to connect with folks like Duncan and now you that are really trying to drive real world impact but looking at are there some alternatives to the traditional financial systems that are in many ways responsible for the very things that we're fighting. So I would say that we're still Early in our journey, we have definitely learned a lot more than I think a lot of nonprofits in our space, but we strongly believe that blockchain is here to stay and that the more nonprofits can do to educate themselves and to start to make connections to Web3 groups, the stronger we are together.
0: It's interesting that you flagged the environmental concern it was one of the big topics you had to discuss as you were educating the board. Many of the companies I talked to, the the first thing that they worry about is kind of criminal exposure. But obviously, given your mission being an environmental one, it makes sense that energy consumption would be the, the <laughs> yeah. sort of... Top concern to get over. I'm curious, were there any strong objectors who said, hey, this just really doesn't make sense or it doesn't align with the mission or this is very, held a really strong concern about going further into the space, particularly as you've started developing the NFT project?
1: Absolutely. And I think that was one of the reasons we really wanted to do this work with CAS and to arm ourselves with knowledge about what is fact versus fiction so we could push back on some of those myths about how all of crypto is an energy hog, et cetera. So we have definitely had objectors and part of our mission with this is not only to address some of those objections, we're not gonna convince anyone, but for folks who are curious, we can help them along that journey and help to make some deeper connections. So part of the reason we really wanted to embark on this NFT project, not just receiving philanthropic dollars from NFT projects, but actually driving our own, was to even flush out some more of those objections and see if we can show in real time, okay, you might have objections with X, Y, and Z, but here's a project that's actually generating revenue for 17 nonprofits that are doing real world good. So I challenge anyone to push back on that.
0: That's right. I think the outcome here far outweighs any of the initial concerns. But I love the education angle because I think this is where a lot of people get hung up at the Oh, I've read a headline or I saw some information once or a friend that I I know told me you can't trust anything about crypto and that kind of halts the conversation. So it's great that you've been able to plow through and then share that learned knowledge with other organizations who are looking to take a similar approach. Duncan, let's talk a little bit about the project. Are you the lead designer on the the NFTs?
2: Sure, I, I'm the product lead, so I'm really yeah. handling
0: everything on the Web3
2: side of things. So we've been working with an artist and he has a couple of assistants to design okay. the actual art for the collection, but then working with you know a team of devs and working with marketing teams and working with UI UX designers to really kind of bring the whole project together and, and get all the pieces in the right place, so to speak.
0: Well, give us the vision as the product lead. What is the story here and where is it going? Get me excited about it. I'm, I'm waiting for the mint to open up. I would love to collect one. So tell me what I have to look forward to.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll give a little background. You know, we were talking about this project, you know, for a while now. I think we've been working on it for the better part of a year, if not a year at this point. And we've really created like a true digital collectible project. We set the story, the lore is the year is 2040 and the earth is undergoing some some struggles and, and challenges and the gyronauts are, you know, the planet its last hope to sort of save them, which is a good tie into humanity these days. And we wanted to set the story a little bit in the future. We have a little bit of a futuristic vibe to our art and to our BFP collection, but, you know, not so far in the future that it's kind of like incomprehensible or sci-fi, right? Like something that feels relevant and pressing and current. And so in talking with, with Anna and the team also, you know, they came to me and it was really cool. And they said, look, we obviously as Five Stars, like we need to raise funds like every nonprofit, but like we don't want this to just be about us what we've learned through a lot of our work is that these problems that we're researching also have great impact everywhere else on, on land and for other organizations and things like that. And so not only are we supporting 5 Gyres, we've actually partnered with 17 credible nonprofit organizations, each one representing one of the United Nations, 17 SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals, which are critical causes they've identified affecting our planet and, and affecting humanity that we need to work on. <laughs> and so we've built real personal relationships. Shout out to Cassin and and Anna and the team for doing a lot of work on that. But it's with incredible organizations who are fighting poverty, fighting hunger, providing healthcare, education, fighting for gender equality, you know, clean energy, you name it, we're we're sort of run the gamut here on these groups. And so what's really cool about the project is we've been saying that we're allowing our mentors, our holders, our community to put their values on chain. So our project works like a normal PFP project or profile picture project, if anyone's not familiar, you know, your little Twitter picture, works like they typically do. So our characters, the Gyronauts, are generated from over 150 traits. So there are eyes and face traits and different hairstyles and hats and different backpacks and jackets and different, like, hand accessories. We even have a goat in there. <laughs> But uh, lots of really cool traits to choose from that are all generated randomly when you mint. But we're giving our our users the opportunity to choose a background. And we've created 17 unique backgrounds. Each background represents one of the 17 SGGs and one of our, you know, nonprofit NGO partners. And so if there is a cause you personally identify with or vibe with or you care about, you have the opportunity to support that organization by minting their background and then using it as your profile picture essence putting your values or the things that you care about on chain. So that's the part that we're really the most excited about. And then from that we can really start to identify like who is genuinely in our community. It does a couple things. It allows us to see you know how many backgrounds of each type get minted, which shows which causes people really are the most aligned with. It incentivizes our partners to promote the project because you know they benefit from the more backgrounds that are minted. And it's just like a really great
0: way for our, our users to have a little bit of fun during during
2: the minting process Process. So
0: those are some of the nuts and bolts. <laughs> I love the customization aspect there. That's one that I hadn't seen come up before. An interesting way to allow people to bind their own interests into the project and hopefully build a bigger community around the organization. And I know you wanted to add on to the story Duncan was just telling, so I'll let you continue.
1: Duncan pretty much nailed it. I was just going to mention that the story of the Gyronauts really mirrors our story as an organization, as Five Gyres really starting in the oceans, seeing that plastic pollution was a big problem that affected marine life and ocean health. But over the years, we've gone further upstream, trying to get closer to the source of the problem. And along that journey, we've seen that plastic is really related to or directly intersects with climate change, You know, due to it being fossil fuels. It relates to our agricultural system and that we use a lot of plastics and microplastics get into the soil and affect plant health it's related to our fishing industry and on and on and on environmental justice and so this project gyronauts really was about we had these original voyages bringing folks on board from different sectors and now we're bringing the band back together in a sense engaging and hopefully empowering this community called gyronauts that each represents a different issue as duncan mentioned related to the un sustainable development goals and The idea is that we can't solve any of these problems in isolation. We have to really be collaborating across sectors. And that's really how we drive big change.
0: I'm curious, if you set a economic target, a dollars-raised goal for the program, do you have something in mind? Yeah, we did. We set
2: that really early on at 500 k so half a million dollars we are trying to raise. The overwhelming majority, I think 75%, is going to the NGO organizations and the rest is going for us to continue to pay people who have done a lot of work without being paid and to continue
0: growing the project after the Mint life. live. That's exciting. I'm hoping that by spotlighting you here on Public Key, we're able to get some big donors that can get you uh, close to and maybe even surpass that goal. What does the auction model look like or the initial mint model? Is it just open to anyone? There's, I know there's more complex kind of distribution tactics that folks sure. are employing these days, like reverse Dutch auctions, <laughs> that I don't fully understand how that, that actually plays out. but.
2: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Dutch auction in general. We're keeping things pretty straightforward. We do have an allow list, so the mint will essentially happen in two phases. We'll have a very brief window for allow list members to to mint their NFTs, probably you know maybe two to three hours max, trying to keep everything really tight in the market, and then we open it up to the public, and anybody who wants to mint can come mint. We're targeting a supply of four thousand nine hundred and forty nine and a mint price of point zero four nine ETH, so you know just under a hundred dollars. It's around like 90 bucks right now. So something fairly attainable, I think, for for most people, at least in the space. And so we're we're anticipating a, a pretty good turnout on Mint Day and we're
0: definitely looking forward to it. Exciting. Is there any sort of royalties tied into the contract? Will you see an ongoing revenue stream associated with this? We we recently had one of the executives from the team at OpenSea on, on the podcast, and it's a hot topic in the industry about ongoing payments to creators versus not. And yeah. I'm curious where you've where you've decided to land on that topic.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I am all in favor of royalties for projects. I think something the BAYC Board API Club has done really well is they've actually like decreased their royalties over time because they've been so successful. But I think in the interest of growing a brand or, or building a business, those royalties really help sustain a project, especially if the mint price is lower or the initial raise is less or, or things like that. But we do have a, a royalty in place. And again, the majority of it is, is going to support the organizations. 2% is going to our artists who work to continue to support them and just you know say thank you to them for all the work that they've done on this project. And I think that was sort of the initial promise of NFTs when I started was this idea that if you're the next people or whoever... <laughs> This idea that if somebody buys your thing for a hundred dollars today and sells it for a million dollars next year, you can continue to benefit from those proceeds. And so we, we do have a royalty system in place that the NGOs will benefit from.
0: I mean, I think it's an interesting, maybe novel concept, even in the nonprofit world, where I think the hardest challenge is recruiting a donor. The second hardest challenge is getting that donor to become a second time donor. And correct me if I'm wrong, but having this idea of an ongoing revenue stream or donation stream coming from secondary sales seems like something that could be a really innovative way to to sustain funding for an organization who's doing good work like yours
1: Uh, absolutely i think you know this is all a pilot it's a big experiment anytime you experiment you take a risk but you're right, there's a difference in the way you would cultivate a donor, which is very relationship-based, although coming full circle, like you talked about in the beginning, Duncan, a lot of this is about building new relationships. But yes, as a nonprofit, anytime you can secure ongoing funding, it's a huge win. So we're really hopeful that this can not only be successful for our organizations, but also that it can create a bit more of a template of an idea for other nonprofits to follow suit.
2: And they can maybe meet a bunch of people they haven't met before who are interested or aren't familiar with Five Gyres. It's a great way to bring the community together. I just want to touch on that relationship thing again because I think I've been really disappointed with a lot of the ways like big brands have entered the space in general. And I think it's really eye opening for people that, again, the transactional nature of our relationships I think needs to change and should change in this space. As ann and the team have found out, you know, it's not just put your wallet on a website and make a bunch of money. Like it's, it is work like you know you have to work for the things that you want if you if you want to be successful and you have to continue to to show up every day and you have to cultivate all those relationships repeatedly and i think everybody has you know learned that throughout this pro- process that it's not easy but it's totally worth it and incredibly rewarding
1: sorry i was going to say one other component to that is the interesting nature of the timing of this project when we first came up with this concept uh, the crypto world was in a very different place as people know a year ago But the fact that we are launching it during what people consider more of a winter, we're hoping that the philanthropy, the values, the mission of this project will help it rise above and really demonstrate that, you know, regardless of the bandwagoning that happens when things are in a different place and people jumping on the bandwagon to make a quick buck, um, the fact that things are not in that place now really calls for every project to have integrity. And we hope that that's what makes this stand out from a lot of the noise.
2: I think that's a really good point. I think integrity is, is a great word. Maybe I'll, I'll make a tweet about that later today. But I think a big reason for this crypto winter, aside from macro like economic factors and all that stuff, is that I think people in the space got, got really burnt out of essentially losing their money, right? Putting their money into empty promises or, you know, giving it to projects with unknown founders who sort of just walked away holding their funds and all that. You know, it's unfortunate that these things do happen in the space all too frequently. But I think if we want the space to continue to grow, we need to continue to build projects that are purposeful and impactful and, and give people a reason to care about something other than just money. Because if all you're chasing is money, I think, you know, nine times out of 10, you're, you're going to end up being disappointed. But if you invest in a project because you think the art is beautiful, or you align with the mission, or you really vibe with the community members in there, and money isn't, you know, your goal at the end of the day, then I think you're going to be happy with whatever you purchase, and you're not really going to worry about the rest as much. And so we're really, you know, hoping to do that here, like a strong community of people who recognize that we are humans we are multifaceted we have families and interests and hobbies and things that we care about again aside from just money and we need to kind of uh, I guess you know, get back in tune with, with that side of ourselves and come out and, and support things that, that really matter.
0: And I'm, I'm interested because it looks like you've rallied some big companies in support of the project. Patagonia, I think, is involved as well as some crypto native companies that are well known like Ledger. How's your experience been in kind of recruiting to bring on that outside support to help with both the organization's goals and the Gyronauts project?
1: So one of the things that's been interesting for us about embarking on more web three brand partnerships um, has been our evolution of understanding what an NFT can actually be. So as an organization, our first exposure to NFTs was through one of our corporate partners, Moen, designing an NFT. They generated about $8,000 for five gyres, and that was when I first started to perk up. But like many people, my understanding of NFTs was static JPEGs, cartoon characters, Things that have become sort of a trope for people to talk about. But what I've learned over the last couple years is that there's so much more to the NFT and that it can really connect. I've heard people describe it as like a a digital membership card or that you own temporarily this asset that can open up whole doors. For example, it can say in our case, it could be a pass to aquariums across the country or it could be discounts aligned with particular brands that are related to our mission. So what's been really cool about Gyronauts is we've been able to connect some of that utility with our brand partners, both those that are open and actively exploring blockchain, you know, for example, Ledger, which is a Web3 native company and is providing some product to holders of our NFTs, but then some of our non-Web3 partners like Clean Canteen and Chico Bag that make products that help people live a plastic-free lifestyle. So it's been really cool to connect some of these real-world utility concepts to holders of the NFT and hopefully engage more people in understanding that NFTs are not just these static images. And sometimes they are, and that can be beautiful too, but that there's more potential here.
2: I want to talk that up just like a, a little bit more. Just make sure it's really clear. I think the other reason that I have pushed the team really hard on corporate sponsorships as well as additional support from our, our NGO partners is is this idea of rewards, right? I think we are very much in a space where people say, "Okay, I'm I'm minting this thing, or I'm paying ninety dollars. Like, what what's in it for me, right? And it's like a totally fair question, right? And because the nature of this project isn't promising a metaverse or a Web three game or a token with a 100 million dollar market cap like we're not promising all of these things right we're promising something really really achievable which uh is one of the reasons I'm so bullish on the project is that we're not building anything from scratch we're supporting all these groups who are already doing incredible work but we needed to have like a real legitimate offering for people and so the corporate sponsors have been really really helpful in that like I cannot even calculate how many like physical rewards like we have Patagonia donated hats and you know t-shirts and shorts and we have dozens of of, you know products from clean canteen and we have coffee from equator coffee. And we have you know stuff from Chico Bag and NFTs from, from Murderheads, which is a liquid death project. And so we have like so many cool sponsorships. There's literally like hundreds and hundreds of items here. And we've created a structure that based on the number of Gyronauts you mint, you know some of them you only need to mint one Gyronaut to get entered into these raffles. Some you need to mint two, or if you happen to mint a specific trait, like you get this sort of reward. And so it was really important for us to have like a cool incentive reward structure uh, in place, and the, and the corporate sponsors have been really incredibly generous and, and really helpful in, in having that for a project.
0: The art can be majestic and engaging and exciting, but I think this concept of utility is really the frontier of where people are taking NFTs, whether that's access or it's connecting into more of a customer or consumer or member loyalty type experience is where I'm seeing a lot of the builders on the edge taking things. And maybe to build on that a little bit as we look out to the future and and take the not just NFTs, but kind of blockchain technology in the biggest sense. And we think about it in this this mission of of solving for climate change and plastic pollution, general sustainability. I'm curious to get your your perspective on where this all fits in. Like there's projects out there. I had Jane Kordoskovsky from the Cello Foundation on the podcast, and she mentioned one of the biggest ongoing projects in that environment is all about carbon credit tracking using blockchain. I'm curious if you've run across any other kind of novel and new uses or maybe something your organization's exploring directly where this technology can be supportive of the, the core mission.
1: Yeah, that's a topic that we're fascinated by. Um, getting beyond just what is the power of blockchain to generate philanthropic dollars, but how could the actual technology be used in solving real world environmental problems? I haven't landed on that 100%, but one area that we're really interested in is is data. Um, As a science-based organization, we generate data that we use to then solve real-world problems. For example, better understanding where plastic is, what's the source, what's the scope, and how can we use that to solve problems. One project we have is called Trash Blitz, and it's a web-based app transitioning to a real-world app that allows people in a community to measure the footprint of plastic in their community. So it's literally photographing hundreds and hundreds of pieces of trash logging them cataloging them understanding not just how much are cigarette butts and plastic bottles but how much comes from coca-cola how much comes from Unilever. so this is one area where improved technology and perhaps blockchain is the answer to get much much better at recognizing this data analyzing data very quickly machine learning to be able to take a photo that instantly recognizes that's a Coca-Cola item, or it's a Unilever item, and then utilizing this data to figure out where are the biggest problems. We've experimented with drones on this topic in Central America, using a drone photo from above to be able to then recognize trash on the ground, not just that there's trash, but the specific items. So I think these are some areas where data analysis could be really helpful. And then taking a step back, technology in general. Plastic at the end of the day is a petrochemical product. And as we improve our technology to search for alternatives, this is, I think, the the frontier of how we get better at solving plastic pollution, getting away from petrochem and into alternatives. And perhaps the research and the data management um, applications of blockchain can help.
0: It's so fascinating. We could have a whole nother episode on that. I'm assuming though, the photography, so the Trash Blitz app and the work you did with the drone footage, once you've identified, oh, this trash is coming from, you know, a particular product vendor, do you go upstream and try and work with the people that are actually manufacturing what ultimately becomes trash and convince them to try and change their approach, their packaging and and bottling? Is that the idea?
1: That is part of the idea, and I should say, if I use the word we here, what I'm really referring to is the global network of thousands of organizations working together, because there's no way an organization like Five Dryers could ever really stand up to a Coca-Cola or a Nestle, but as a coalition, and this is why it's so important to collaborate, this idea of the brand audit really emerged from coalition partners in Southeast Asia that were sick of being blamed for the problem of pollution and looking at, well, Let's talk about who's making all this stuff. And so that is how the brand audit emerged with like, let's not just do a cleanup, but let's log how much of that is coming from these multinational companies, and then a little bit of shaming to say, you are the biggest corporate polluter, what are you gonna do about it? That hasn't solved the problem, but it's been effective at bringing those corporate partners to the table.
0: You know, we talked in the pre-record. my previous company had some association with Dell Technologies, and Dell, they've shifted their entire supply chain, where I think they've removed plastic from every computer laptop peripheral that they ship is plastic free at this point, and they've, I think, put quite a bit of effort behind helping with some of the ocean cleanup as well. So there is There is hope here that we can get big producers or users of of plastics to pull that out of their supply chain. And I think the case you're making for being able to document the trash at the end state, and then going back upstream is a terrific concept. I know there's gonna be people who have listened to this episode and say, wow, I didn't realize the scope and magnitude of the problem. I love what you're doing. I'm gonna go mint one of the gyronauts for sure. How else can people get involved? What's the best way if they wanna either participate in your organization or the the broader coalition that you're in front of? Where would you suggest they get started?
1: I'd say first and foremost is to subscribe, to learn more about the issues that we're talking about, and not just to Five Gyres, but as we mentioned with Gyronauts, we have 17 NGOs that are collaborating on this together. So I would tell people to go to gyronauts.io and check out all of the partners that are working on this together. For some folks, the issue of plastic pollution might really resonate, but for others it might be women's empowerment or climate change, or working on um, indigenous issues. So we have organizations that represent all of those causes. And I would say, go to gyronuts.io, peruse the nonprofits that are participating and uh, and sign up to learn more and get involved.
0: Amazing. Anna, Duncan, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Excited to see the project launch and uh, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks, Anne. Appreciate it your time. Great.
0: A lot of fun. Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So do me a favor right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Let's face it, many investors are eager to embrace cryptocurrency but they don't feel they have the data to do so successfully. With traditional assets, there are established providers for a variety of metrics investors can use to assess opportunity and risk. There's market data for trading activity and pricing, fundamental data for business and industry analysis. So you might be wondering, does a nascent asset class like crypto have comparable data available so that investors can make decisions with confidence as they do in evaluating stocks and bonds? The answer is yes, and then some. I'm happy to announce the Chainalysis Token Health Report. And although we aren't providing investment advice, this report provides data on how tokens are moving through the crypto economy, who's holding, how much, and what services participants are using, and more. Head down to the show notes and download a sample of the report today to see how this on-chain data is used to create metrics for token distribution, liquidity, market composition, and then use those metrics to compare a sampling of crypto assets.